Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I am the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, we have two very special guests joining me on the show, of which Dr. James O'Hara is at Merrick Health, and Dr. Kyle Gillette will also joining me on the show. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, Lucas, thanks for having us. I do just want to clarify, I am a nurse practitioner. I don't have quite the stature of Dr. Kyle Gillette here. (laughs) We we could probably make a joke, a naturopathic doctor, an MD, and a nurse practitioner walk into a bar. (laughs) It's a good group to have today. Awesome, awesome. So maybe um, James and Kyle, do you want to let my audience know a little bit about what you both are really passionate about currently and the type of work you do on a daily basis. Absolutely. James, I'll start if you don't mind. Lucas, I know that we've chatted quite a bit before, but in general, I'm passionate about what I'd call holistic medicine. So this is approaching medicine from every different angle. So, you know, if you want your body to be a race car, then you want to have a head mechanic, like a a pit crew leader. And if you want to function well, like in formula one, then you're going to want a good pit crew driver that knows about every aspect. So they just don't know about, you know, carburetors specifically. They don't only know about, you know, different types of fuel and they don't know just about race strategy. So they're there to advise you 
and look over you. So that's what I'm looking at. You know, I'm well-versed in functional medicine, of course, well-versed in traditional medicine, allopathic medication, also supplements. So a little bit here, there, and everywhere. I think it's important that the individual who's looking for optimal performance not only has a primary care provider, but has somebody that is, you know, well in tune with their specific goals and needs. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And, uh, and James? Yeah, I think we share a lot of similarities. I'm a big fan of preventive medicine. Uh, that's actually what drew me into continuing my education on to become a nurse practitioner was working in the uh, cardiology field and seeing these largely preventable cardiovascular events. And knowing that there's things I can do, steps that I can help others take to prevent these things from happening, improve quality of life. And then you know, out of that, you know, we don't want to just prevent disease, but also have optimal health, optimal you know, productivity, whatever it is that somebody's trying to optimize. You know, for myself, I, I enjoy like athletic performance, being able to see progress in the gym, progress when I'm learning things, picking things up. So you know, smart supplementation protocols that can help people get to those goals smart prescribing to help people get to their health goals. And I'm a, I'm a big tool guy. So I have, you know, a lot of different tools and you have to have the right tool for the job. So that's why I really like the integrative approach where you have both the, the best of the pharmacology, the best of supplementation, and then you uh, lifestyle is really going to be the foundation before you move on to either one of those. So that's just a brief overview and kind of how I approach things. Um, we always want to balance risks and benefits. And a lot of times what people want to achieve and what nature gives them, you end up about you know, somewhere in the middle there, depending on your genetics and, and what you can build around that. Mm, yeah. Awesome. We'll definitely be diving deeper into, you know, risks and benefits throughout this podcast for those listening in. But um, I'd really like to start out by discussing testosterone and SHBG. I mean, that is Possibly the most frequent question I get asked is, how do I lower SHBG? What's the function of SHBG? So maybe we can get a discussion around, first of all, what is SHBG and why does the body even produce it in the first place? So SHBG is sex hormone binding globulin. It's the main protein or globulin that binds sex hormones. So androgens and estrogens both. So most strongly it binds DHT, your most, uh, you know, androgenic hormone, and then it binds testosterone and then some minor androgens and weakest with estrogens first, for example, estradiol. So it's produced primarily by the liver and its half-life is around one week. So if you think about SHBG, because it's a protein, it can help these sterile rings that it binds to theoretically cross membranes easier. For example, cell membranes, for example, the blood brain barrier. So it's also a regulatory function in general, the lower your SHBG. So think insulin resistance or genetic polymorphisms, the faster you can metabolize your testosterone and especially DHT. So that's kind of uh, where it comes from and its function, whether it's good or bad, seems like the primary debate. That's it. That's it. James, in terms of your clinical experience, I guess, um, looking at blood work and analyzing, you know, these labs and things like that. When it comes to SHBG, I mean, have you seen people generally feel better with, let's say, higher levels of SHBG compared to, let's say, lower levels? Or what have you seen clinically? So 
It's very difficult to tell just based off the blood work because some people will be you know, very sensitive to their testosterone levels, free or total. And some people will be clinically hypogonadal or very close to it and feel just fine and feel incredible, actually. So there's a lot of variation. But as far as SHBG, I really look at the clinical picture. So somebody can have a low total testosterone and a low SHBG, and then their free testosterone looks to be in a very good place. And I don't know how far off into the weeds we want to get here. There is some in vitro data that supports that SHBG may actually facilitate a, a stronger gene response to androgen signaling. So while that's not well established in people, like an in vivo model of study, we do see some data there. So really, it looks at the clinical picture. A lot of the guidelines for treating testosterone use the total testosterone as a threshold. They don't really look at the SHBG, the, the total testosterone, there's less data there. So it's really about looking at the clinical picture for the patient. But in general, there are instances where you have somebody with a, a great total testosterone, a great free testosterone, a low SHBG, and they'll be complaining of, you know, they have a, a decrease in libido. And I've seen an anecdotal case or two where we make some changes, get the SHBG elevated, and then the libido is restored. So it can function as a, a transport protein specifically to the prostate. Uh, there is evidence of that. There's actual SHBG receptors on the prostate. Mm -hmm. So it's widely variable. It's hard to give an exact answer, but I do love to have this discussion and talk about the data that is out there for us to look at. It really is a, it is a fun discussion because um, a lot of people are really fixated on just looking at the numbers, right? Like everyone's hyper-focused on labs and they just want their free T to be as high as possible. And there are some people that go as far as literally going on TRT just to lower the SHBG when there may be some other strategies at play. So maybe Kyle, do you want to explore you know, is that a viable strategy for some men or like what should they be looking for there? For 99% of men, they shouldn't go on TRT just to lower SHBG. I have seen men with natural testosterone well north of 1000 that want to go on TRT with normal free testosterone because of a high SHBG. So uh, cases like that, there's obviously a lot of other things and we'll touch base about boron at some point, I'm sure. But another interesting corollary to James's point about SHBG receptors and the prostate is a potential application for high SHBG being good for prevention of androgenic alopecia. So if you think about it, SHBG tends to rise with age. That's part of andropause. And if you look at AAFP's practice guidelines, the kind of like the main reason for TRT is actually raising SHBG in the aging male and to continue for them to have normal libido and sexual function. And then you do a risk-based benefit. It's actually a pretty good recommendation by the uh, American Academy of Family Practice. But obviously, older men have higher SHBGs, and also they tend to have progression of androgenic alopecia, probably because of receptor sensitivity and also just chronologic damage over time. But theoretically, SHBG can also have an effect to protect the follicle, partly just from decreasing free androgens, free DHT being the obvious one, but also potentially directly on both the androgen receptor and uh, maybe there's an SHBG receptor there as well. 
So that's an interesting thing. Um, but yeah, in my experience, 99% of the time, men don't need TRT just for a high SHBG. In fact, if they feel fine, it is preferential to have a high SHBG because you have more uh, steady testosterone levels. So part of the theory why SHBG goes up through aging is the same reason why SHBG goes up in the presence of only one testicle or in the presence of testicular damage, or for example, a severe varicocele is because it helps prevent the metabolism of testosterone while maintaining a relatively normal free T. Mm, that totally makes sense. I was literally having this discussion the other day with one of my friends who, um, I mean, he has decided to go on TRT and he was saying, Oh, why don't you just jump on TRT? I'm like, well, dude, I've, I've spent the last five years trying to optimize my testosterone naturally as high as possible. And I'm sitting at, you know, 988 total with, you know, about 470 free T that's um, our, our units and my SHBGs off the scale high, but not ridiculously high. It's just, just slightly outside the range. And I'm like, why would I do that? I mean, that's just, it just doesn't make sense. So, but one aspect there I'd love to chat about is I guess the liver, if the liver creates or helps to synthesize SHBG, then how frequent is it that there are actually some underlying liver disorders or is that usually not really the case? Yeah, so I'll talk a bit about uh, liver pathology. In some cases, you can have uh, where somebody has liver disease or cirrhosis, and that can cause a abnormally high production of SHBG, which can decrease the total available sex hormones, uh, meaning primarily the free testosterone is what we would think of there. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, and I guess to circle back to your initial question, you know, why do we produce SHBG? There are some very rare instances where people will have a homozygous mutation and actually produce no SHBG. So this was a really interesting case study that I dug into and uh, a male who had uh, a very, very low total testosterone uh, still had a normal free testosterone because of the absence of SHBG and developed normally but they did have symptoms of low testosterone, such as you know, poor exercise recovery, fatigue, sleep difficulties, things of that nature that I just recall off the top of my head. So it does give you some anecdotal support to the importance of SHBG, perhaps for tissue delivery, perhaps specifically for the skeletal muscle, although we're not quite there with the data to support that hypothesis. Wow. That's super interesting. I guess, um, that mutation, I guess, would be extremely rare, right? Like that's not, it's very, very rare. No, no. if you're listening to this, that is not what you have probably. So that's probably yeah. not the cause. It's particularly applicable for people who take SARMs, for example, LGD or RAD140 or S4, because they usually have very low or single digit SHBGs in those cases as well. Mm. Obviously they have a very strong selective androgen receptor modifier in addition to the low SHPG, but it does go to show that that is definitely a suboptimal way to do supplementation. Well, this is, I'm glad you brought that up because I really want to dive into Psalms and just illustrate to my listeners because I'd have a, I'd have youngsters listening in as well. And I sort of want to illustrate to them that Psalms are simply, in my opinion, they're just steroids. And some of them have the same side effects, right? And they, they can suppress natural testosterone production. 
And I want to hear it from you guys in terms of what you've seen clinically. I'm sure you've had to help men recover from some abuse. So what does that recovery state look like? What does that journey look like? And yeah, what have you found works in clinic? So we obviously have encountered a lot of cases of SARM use and helped a lot of people recover from them and advised a lot of people not to use them as well. So I think it's a pretty good way to look at it, that they're a sort of steroid. I look at them more as a research medication. That's what they're primarily used for lately, but it seems to be that very young people disproportionately use them. So it's very interesting to see how people recover from medications depending on what they use. So one misconception that is particularly malignant is that, you know, a young person might take uh, cyclosteroids. Maybe they're not even injectable. Maybe they're just taking, um, you know, a D ball only cycle and they know that they need to recover from that and see the doctor for that. And then they think, yeah, I probably need to recover my natural testosterone, but it seems that, Many people who use SARMs do not realize that they need help recovering from this, and they think that it's not going to affect their natural hormone production. So that's the main thing that we see, and that's the main education that we tried to give patients. Mm. Yeah. Do you see anything as well, James, in clinic in terms of um, SARM recovery or patients inquiring about them? Yeah. So there's a a group of patients that will actually, you know, come in, ask for advice. They say, Hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Typically their goals are to improve body composition or improve athletic performance. And then we give them the very good reasons not to pursue that route as a, a means to get to that end result. So you can see things like very prolonged suppression of androgen production in men sometimes three, six months, even longer with very low levels of total testosterone, typically in the 100s. And a lot of times it's these guys that realize they have made a mistake and they're not bouncing back that something is off. And then we see evidence of that suppression. So it can be longstanding. Other lab abnormalities, as Dr. Gillette had mentioned, the low SHBG Some of the worst uh, HDL, LDL ratios that I've seen, the HDL tends to be very low. So that creates a very uh, pro-atherogenic environment. So you certainly don't want to put yourself in that situation. Mm -hmm. So I think the SARMs is a scenario where the marketing has gotten ahead of the research. So somebody can take a, a line from a study, not even in a human model, could be in an animal model. And they say that this is, you know, safe, effective, increases muscle mass, but it doesn't always translate from animal models to human models. And you have to look and see sometimes this research is also not interpreted correctly. Mm, yeah, very well said. I think um, super important to highlight for the young men out there. And I mean, as part of my mission with the whole brand that I've set up is to at least to a degree, protect young men from making silly decisions and, and help them navigate their way through health. And I think both of you guys are doing a good job with that. We sort of touched on, Kyle mentioned boron. So I'd love to um, explore, you know, what your thoughts are on boron as a supplement and how you've used it clinically. So with boron, it's typically people who do have a higher level of SHBG 
that uh, we feel is causing them to be symptomatic where they may benefit from an increase in their testosterone level, specifically the free testosterone level. So a couple of compounds like boron or a stinging nettle, nettle root have been shown to increase that free or bioavailable testosterone. It depends on the individual. Some people tend to be non-responders to boron where we don't see that increase in the free testosterone we're looking for, but some people respond very well to it. With the nettle in particular, that actually has some data in vitro again. So in a test tube, it will actually bind to the SHPG. So the question is at what affinity? So we don't know if it's binding strong enough to knock off just estrogen or if it's binding strong enough to knock off testosterone or if it's binding very strongly and also knocking off the free DHT. But the nettle also can serve as a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor to some degree. So there are some data suggesting that it can cause shrinkage of the prostate gland. And the question is whether it's a, a decrease in the DHT that's causing that or potentially by binding to the SHBG that then cannot transport those androgens into the prostate cells. So very interesting. And it depends on the person's goal. So if somebody has a high normal SHBG and they want to trial increasing their free testosterone, boron is a relatively safe way to go about that. And then we just gauge the response based on the laboratory data and the clinical picture. Mm, awesome. Awesome. What about, what about you, Kyle? I think of boron kind of like vitamin D. If you are low in boron, then it's probably going to be more efficacious. So boron's found in the soils. The... Way to get it naturally, I suppose, is through your diet, of course, and dates and raisins are known to have boron supposedly because they come from the Mediterranean area, which many countries in the Mediterranean, like Greece, have higher levels of boron in the soil. So perhaps boron in the soil is something that our farming and food production community should consider. But it's one of those things where I think of it just like vitamin D, the less you have, the more it's probably going to help you. And I've also, I've also seen research that um, indicates that actually using boron can raise levels of vitamin D. Have you, have you seen that research as well? I think I've seen some that it raises SHBG. I'm not sure about its interaction with vitamin D, but there's definitely a compensatory mechanism where you take it for a few weeks and then your body's homeostasis through an unknown mechanism probably kicks in and then kind of renormalizes mm. similar to a lot of testosterone boosting supplements. Yeah, definitely in terms of looking at different logs, like people's experience with boron and because I'm in so many different forums and, and chats and things like that, I've seen so many guys like say like after the first week, all the effects sort of faded away or they then started noticing symptoms, quote unquote symptoms of high estrogen or low estrogen, things like that. So I think, um, yeah, boron is one of those supplements that can be integrated. And I guess um, subjective experiences, I guess, extremely important, um, particularly when it comes to these supplements. I know um, one of the points you mentioned before, Kyle, was the fact that not all supplements, just because they're, let's say, natural, are sort of free of side effects. So do you want to sort of discuss that comparison? I know you're, you're really passionate about this area in terms of certain supplements versus medications. So let's get that let's get that discussion going there. Yeah, so you think of a classic example, willow bark versus aspirin. So aspirin is acetylsalicylic acid and willow bark is salicylic acid, like the type that you put on your face for acne, plus acetylsalicylic acid. 
in a ratio. Aspirin is actually one of the few medications that breaks down quite quickly. So uh, it changes from acetosalicylic acid, it's deacetylated to salicylic acid. So it can upset your stomach more if it's more than a few years old. Whereas most tablets and capsules, if they're kept in a cool, dry place, are very shelf stable. Uh, that's from the Shelf Life Prevention Program with the U.S. government. So that's one case where aspirin is very likely much safer for you to put uh, to ingest orally than willow bark. Willow bark has been used for thousands of years, and it's a traditional medication, but it's probably not as safe. Another example would be ephedrine. So ephedrine is actually a banned substance. We used to use it for weight loss until early 2000s, I believe. But it's actually not banned for traditional medicine, for example, Chinese traditional medicine. So a lot of their supplements for weight loss and things like that have ephedrine in it. But it's basically a, a non-selective sympathomimetic. So you think of more selective ones as many of the ADHD meds or even some meds like bupropion or diethylpropion monoamines. So that's a, probably another example of where the supplement is probably not as ideal as the more selective medication. Mm. And what about there's a and berberine and metformin? I'm sure you get that asked that quite a lot as well. Yeah. And I'm sure James has had a lot of, I know he's had a lot of experience with this too, but berberine's known for making people or causing hypoglycemic episodes more often. Mm. So it's kind of similar-ish mechanism to metformin. Metformin in general, and there's still a lot of misconceptions about metformin, even among physicians and naturopathic doctors too, I'm sure. But metformin tends not to cause hypoglycemic episodes, uh, including as much as berberine, unless it's combined with an ACE or an ARB, which is a very strange combination. But so if you're, if it's combined with lisinopril or telmosartan, you know, that's your classic bodybuilder stack. Take your metformin, take your telmosartan, take your beta blocker. Uh, those two synergistically cause hypoglycemic episodes. So it's important to have someone on your team that understands interactions like that. And isn't Telmisartan alone, isn't that also efficacious or quite good at also improving insulin sensitivity just by itself? Is there any research on that? My belief is that it's pretty weak when it comes to insulin sensitivity. So it's a weak PPAR delta agonist. Any PPAR agonist will work on other PPARs, whether it's alpha or gamma or delta. So I don't think that it's a particularly strong PPAR agonist in any way, whether it's clinically significant is actually still unknown, but it certainly doesn't hurt that it has that as a property. Yeah. Yeah. What about yourself, James, in terms of that natural? Yeah. Yeah. Great comments uh, by Dr. Gillette. I really like the analogy with, uh, you know, supplements, they tend to be less target specific, whereas pharmaceuticals are a bit more refined. So you have a very narrow target that you're trying to, you know, affect in one way or another with a pharmaceutical and even metformin kind of gets a rap as a, a dirty drug because it has multiple different mechanisms of action, multiple ways it affects things, the glute four upregulation and skeletal muscle also decreasing glucose output by the liver. So gluconeogenesis limiting that there's a number of different things metformin does potentially even impacting signaling that is downstream of mTOR important growth pathway, but not to the same degree as something like a rapamycin or a rapalog. So it has wide ranging effects. So I would say that metformin may be the supplement of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, if that's confusing enough for people. Uh, but as far as uh, telmosartan, 
I don't know that it's going to you know, correct somebody's pre-diabetes or diabetes, but it probably does something. So if there's something that has a, a good safety profile that's well-established and that's going to be better than an alternative unit, uh, then that would, then an alternative medication that is, uh, would probably be smart prescribing. And there are some interesting case studies out there published like in, um, by the American Heart Association. can't recall the specific journal, but there was a case where uh, an individual was switched from telmosartan to losartan, I believe it was. And then he had his glycemic indices worsen, was switched back, and then they saw the improvements again. So as for what makes one person much more sensitive to that than another, I believe that still remains to be seen. But for some people, it could be clinically significant. But for a majority of people, we're probably moving the needle just a little bit in the right direction. We want to stick with you know, traditional guidelines. I would choose metformin over telmosartan for somebody with elevated blood sugar and lifestyle over metformin for that. So we kind of have different interventions that move the needle a different amount. Mm, yeah, it's always it's always hard to... You know, look at the modern research, Western medicine's, you know, analysis of certain medications and then to also factor in or include some of the historical uses of some of these like herbs, like goat's rue, which is the original source of um, metformin. But things like that totally make sense. I think Kyle also mentioned, I guess, um, the combined oral contraceptive pill. I'd love to explore that with you because I know there are a lot of people, a lot of people that, you know, I guess are confused around how it's used, how various doctors prescribe it. So maybe did you want to talk about your experience with this particular medication? Yeah. So the most close natural analog to oral contraceptive pills is actually bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, which is interesting. So you'd think that if your physician is prescribing you oral contraceptive pills of synthetic progestins or estrogens, that they would probably be very well-versed in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, which may or may not be the case. But you can look at different classes of both the estrogens and the progestins. Progestins is synthetic progestogens. So you have your androgens, your estrogens, and your progestogens. And these progestins can come from many different sources. One is testosterone. One is spironolactone. But depending on the type of progestin that you pick, it has different advantages and disadvantages. For example, there's ones that are testosterone-derived, drosperinone, I believe, is one of the generics that's fairly commonly used. There's another common generic, levonorgestrel. But anyway, a lot of these, even though they're testosterone-derived, they actually have anti-androgenic properties. So they can have an effect both on SHBG and your platelets, depending on the estrogen that's used. And for, for some of the oral contraceptives, there's two of them, the mini pill and then Slind that actually don't have any estrogen at all. But usually you have your higher dose combined or COCPs, and those include high doses of estrogen, usually ethanol estradiol. Then you have your lower doses, again, usually ethanol estradiol, which is a very strong synthetic version of estradiol that's around 100 times more potent. So when you take, you know, a lot of my patients ask me, well, if I get my uh, hormones via an IUD, will they go systemic to some degree? The answer is yes. And also they ask me, well, if I get a, an implant like the Nexplanon, which is much better than the original Implanon, will that go systemic? And the answer is yes. And the depot shot, yes, it all goes systemic, just to different degrees. 
And it's important to remember that they skip that first pass metabolism. So when first pass occurs in the liver, the higher your dose, usually of synthetic estrogen, but also depending on your oral progestin, it will increase SHBG more. And there's been many papers, I believe one fairly recently from the British Medical Journal, BMJ, about how they postulate that the higher the SHBG, the more dysregulation of the coagulation system you have, the higher your platelets and the higher risk of clot. And it does appear to be that way where the higher your dose of synthetic estrogen, the higher your blood clot risk, of course, on top of preceding risk. And then depending on your progestin, the specific type that you choose also tells you what your risk of VTE or venous thromboembolism will be. So it's very important to choose one that both has the benefits depending on your specific situation and also the risk. And then some people, after I give that spiel, they say, well, this sounds horrible. They sound like they have a ton of side effects. A lot of the side effects are just a bump up of your baseline risk. So assessing your baseline risk will help a lot as well. And also keep in mind that these are contraceptive pills. I see these as things to be used for contraception and not really to be used for, you know, PCOS or off-label things or uh, dysmenorrhea. I think addressing the cause is better in that situation. But if you need contraception, having a child at a bad time of your life is horrible for your health. So you have to weigh that as a potential risk as well. Mm, Yeah, really fascinating. And even you mentioned there that some doctors are prescribing them to treat let's say PCOS and and or other, let's say endometriosis, what's their rationale there? Like why do they select these medications? They can help ameliorate the symptoms and they're thought of as generally well tolerated. So they actually have effects and this is somewhat controversial, believe it or not. They have effects even after you stop using them. So PCOS is kind of on a continuum, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and probably a quarter of Americans have at least uh, something that's diagnosable as PCOS from Rotterdam criteria or otherwise. And the period after you stop them, even potentially years later, you could be more likely to have this because of COCP use. So a lot of the side effects, I believe, are insidious. Wow. James, what about your experience with COCP? Yeah, as Dr. Gillette mentioned, the ethanol estradiol is a very potent estrogen. And when that passes through the liver, you tend to have those very substantial increases in sex hormone binding globulin, which can happen with other estrogenic compounds, selective estrogen modulators. When you have those estrogenic compounds passing through the liver, that also does tend to increase your propensity for platelet aggregation. So it makes sense that the more estrogenic something is, you would see both the SHBG and the platelet aggregation increase proportionally. As far as the physical effects it can have on people, the kind of you know, joke around on oral contraceptives has become, well, after you start them, you won't have a libido. So, you know, why would you start them in the first place? But uh, it can, particularly the ethanol estradiol has been well-established to lower free testosterones uh, as much as 80% I've seen in the literature. Uh, and in just blood work that I've seen, I've seen actually undetectable levels of testosterone in uh, a few women who have been taking oral contraceptives just because it has such a profound effect, which as Dr. Gillette mentioned, that SHBG increase may persist even after the medication is discontinued. Mm-hmm. So we have women that are taking a synthetic progestin, a synthetic estrogen, 
but then you're not addressing the lack of androgen signaling at all. So it would be interesting from a hypothetical standpoint to look at what would we see if there was some sort of androgen there to balance things out because you have you know, synthetic estrogen, synthetic progestin. If you added a small, say, synthetic dose of oxandrolone at maybe one milligram so that the androgen signaling is not completely absent, that may be an interesting thing to you know, study at some point, but has not been done except for in women with Turner syndrome to promote uh, growth acceleration. So these medications are used, but for right now, it just looks like that's something to be aware of is that the testosterone levels will likely decrease, likely to a significant degree with the use of the oral contraceptives. So for women who have you know, athletic concerns or goals, athletes, college scholarships and so forth, that may be something to take into consideration. I'm really happy you brought up the influence of the androgens on female libido because that often gets neglected and pushed under the rug a bit. And I'm sure you've seen this as well, Kyle. Guys, you want to maybe explore this a bit further. I mean, what role does testosterone have in women from a libido perspective? It's very similar in females to men, actually. So a lot of people have the misconception that libido in men is only due to testosterone. So libido is a very complicated thing, as is sexual health, because, you know, it's both sympathetic and parasympathetic. And there's a lot of different neurotransmitters at play. But so a lot of men have pretty normal libidos, despite being hypogonadal. And a lot of men have huge issues with libido, even on TRT. A lot of times it's related to dopamine, but sometimes it's related to estrogen or progesterone activity. So the way I think of testosterone in women is if you have an undetectable level of like free testosterone and you're on COCPs, then yeah, it's extremely likely to crash your libido. You know, it's just very, very likely to. But if you can maintain a relatively normal free testosterone level, I don't see any reason to optimize it in women just for their libido. So I guess the analogy would be in men that are hypogonadal, a lot of times it's even, you know, many, many doctors, not just health optimization doctors are okay with optimizing testosterone in men for sexual health and libido, but somehow they're not okay doing it for women which seems like that should be wrong. And it is. So a lot of women should think about optimizing their testosterone. A lot of them take DHEA, especially if they've also gone through adrenopause. So that's a, a good intervention that they can do. Another good intervention is just changing their COCP, or if they're on HRT, potentially considering some testosterone as part of their bioidentical hormone replacement as well. Mm. And James also mentioned oxandrolone, which is uh, Anavar, right? So do you want to maybe, I haven't spoken about Anavar at all on any of my channels or anything anywhere. So James, what's, what do we know about that particular medication? And I wasn't aware that that was used to deliberately raise androgens in women. Yeah, in uh, very specific circumstances. So when you have genetic conditions that predispose individuals to short stature in adulthood, or if you have a, for example, a teenage boy who's gone through puberty or as, is not going through puberty rather, and they're trying to get him to his adult height faster, there's not a true increase in final height in men who take oxandrolone, but it will increase the growth velocity. So it tends to be very 
uh, or fairly well tolerated, I'll say it will cause lipid abnormalities. Uh, it will decrease the sex hormone binding globulin as androgens do. And the doses that are prescribed are very, very low compared to what somebody who is doing a typical bodybuilder cycle is. So, you know, the highest doses in literature for, you know, females tend to be, you know, 2.5 to 3.5 milligrams. And even those doses cumulatively can cause some virilization. So things like you know, unwanted body hair, facial hair growth, deepening of the voice, clitoral enlargement, and those things can be longstanding. So very small doses of androgens females can be sensitive to. And then the doses used for males are also very, very low, you know, something like five milligrams, whereas a typical bodybuilder may be trying to use something like 50 milligrams. So it may be a case, again, of extrapolation where people are saying, well, look, it's safe and well tolerated in the study. And then they arbitrarily increase the doses because more is always better as kind of the mantra. But we know that's not the case. And um, that's how it's used in clinical practice. It's very infrequently prescribed, sometimes used in burn victims also to support retaining lean body mass. Interesting. Kyle, have you dealt with clients that have, literally, that have been on Anavar-only cycles in the past at all? I've had a lot of clients that have come to us on Anavar or after taking Anavar. I'm sure there have been some on Anavar-only cycles. But most people would not do this because it has a very short half-life. So really, you'd have to take it probably three times a day to have actual like baseline androgenic tissue selective activity, you know, like as like a base androgen. So it's a horrible base androgen. A lot of people will add it to their TRT. So, but yeah, not a lot of people on only Anavar. As far as women, it's one of those situations where if you have to be on oral contraceptives, is it really worth adding Anavar in? James posted on his Instagram an excellent study about finasteride and cardiac remodeling left ventricular hypertrophy. So you can think of Anavar, and hopefully nobody sound bite, like clips this sound bite out. You can somewhat think of Anavar as a really high dose of DHT that's going to get in and out of your system pretty quickly. So its risk is pretty similar to the risk of having a very high DHT, which is uh, left ventricular hypertrophy and cardiac remodeling, which you see with pretty much any anabolic androgenic steroid. Mm. So you probably don't want to be on a high dose of it for a long time, or you would potentially have to worry about developing that LVH with women. It might not be as much of a risk, but another thing to keep in mind is the dose. So a harm risk reduction, regardless of what supplement or steroid that you're taking is extremely important, even with Anivar, but low doses of Exandrolone do seem to be one of the safest ones. My primary concerns would be atherosclerosis, a plaque buildup. It's, it's probably atherogenic as is any anabolic androgenic steroid and also cardiac remodeling. Mm. And I'm also glad you mentioned um, DHT because that's something I'd like to ask you both around exogenous THT administration and or topical DHT creams. I'm sure you've had clients inquiring about these, whether or not they brought up that study where it literally shrinks the prostate. Was that the French study? I don't know if you've seen that one, Kyle. Yeah. At this time, topical or injectable or exogenous DHT alone is not something that I have prescribed and I, I'm not sure if there's even pharmacies that 
are compounding it or making it. It's not a medicate. Like there's no name for the medication that I know of. Just like there's generic testosterone and generic estrogen and generic progesterone. It's definitely an interesting thing, but we're probably five to 10 years away from like a common medical use for it. If there uh, is deemed to be one after more research and repeatability of studies like that. Mm. Do we suspect it? Like I know this is future thinking and future analysis here, but like, do we think that exogenous DHT would cause endogenous suppression of testosterone at all? I'm definitely skeptical, which is why I said repeatabilities of studies like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. From a, um, from a metabolic standpoint, James, I know you touched on, I mean, you're really passionate about cholesterol. Did you want to maybe dispel some of the common myths around HDL and LDL cholesterol? Yeah, so we can start with HDL. It's a little bit uh, easier. So in general, a low HDL is associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes over time. And a high HDL is associated with better cardiovascular outcomes over time. But manipulating HDL with medications or supplementation has not seemed to pan out in the long-term outcomes. So for example, niacin uh, will increase HDL and the effect size is not what you would expect if you were looking at uh, somebody based on their natural HDL. So for that one, to me, it speaks more to the type of lifestyle that somebody is living compared to what can I take to bring up my HDL. So for example, if somebody is doing a lot of aerobic exercise, they're very insulin sensitive, metabolically healthy, I'll tend to see a very high level of HDL. So that's HDL in a nutshell. Moving on to the LDL particles such as lipoprotein A and apolipoprotein B, which is kind of emerging as the, the forefront, the most, uh, the strongest predictive factor of having a vascular event, the ApoB is, that's the one that uh, some people will tell you is safe under the right circumstances. So they say it doesn't matter how high your LDL is. If you control inflammation, then you are you know not going to have a heart attack or not going to lay down plaque. And all the data that we have points to a high level of apolipoprotein B, a high non-HDL cholesterol being directly correlated with uh, cardiovascular events. And then you see uh, good case studies in people who have uh, genetic polymorphisms where they have very, very low levels of cholesterol and apolipoprotein B and their risk for having a vascular event or uh, plaque buildup in the arteries is something like 90% lower than the general population. So it's very clear that lower apolipoprotein B, lower non-HDL cholesterol is going to be protective for your cardiovascular system. So the way I kind of frame it is if are you a, a betting person? You know, because we all we've all heard the stories where somebody, oh well, you know, my grandfather had high cholesterol and smoked and he lived to be, you know, 97. So there's one-offs like that, but the odds of the repeatability of that outcome is very low. So while some people may have other protective you know, polymorphisms or things that we're not even aware of that they have in general for the average person, it's going to have a negative outcome because a lot of times that lipoprotein is what's going to drive the inflammatory response. The more particles you have circulating, the higher the likelihood of those getting into the artery wall and causing that inflammatory response, which then will trigger the damage. So I'll uh, let Kyle comment. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So the way I think about it to explain it in layman's terms is the cholesterol is the plaque that builds up in the plaque wall and you need both blocks and glue for the wall. So the blocks is the inflammation and the insulin resistance. So you have to address all of those things. Now, I'm not a betting person. So, you know, I would certainly not want to have a ton of blocks and just hope that my levels of inflammation were always low. Lots of different things can trigger very high levels of inflammation, including, you know, illnesses, including autoimmune disease, including a lot of other things that people very commonly get. So you're going to have glue at some point. So you probably want to control the blocks as well. Mm. That being said, it's just important to talk to your doctor about how, like what risk both of you are willing to take via shared decision-making. So that's how I think about the lipid particles and plaque buildup in the arteries in general. Mm. What about, I guess, the relationship between, because obviously one of the biggest questions that guys have is, you know, if they go on TRT, what impact is that going to have on their cholesterol? What does the data suggest in this area? Yeah, so testosterone in general is, is a cholesterol medicine for sure. So if you look at when you dose yourself with testosterone, I posted a study on my Instagram, a healthy volunteer is taking 500 megs of testosterone. So, and they, they saw what happened with their HMGA COA reductase. Yeah. Pretty fun study to read, but anyway, it basically induces this and then produces a whole bunch of LDL and less HDL, but it's only for a few hours. So like six or eight hours dose dependent. So And now obviously the cholesterol is going to be around in your bloodstream for a while. But if you're thinking about the like ratio of HDL to LDL, then yes, theoretically you could build up more plaque, but it's kind of like the opposite of niacin. So what does niacin do? It raises your HDL, but it makes you more insulin resistant. So niacin can actually somewhat increase your risk of prediabetes and diabetes similar to statins actually. So one of the reasons why niacin probably doesn't work well is because yes, it helps your HDL a bit, but it makes you less insulin sensitive and it might give you diabetes. If you just took niacin and you were borderline for a while, it probably would push you into the diabetic range, which is by far worse for your ASCVD risk, your risk of plaque. So TRT is kind of the opposite. If you're kind of on the range of diabetes or not diabetes and you're hypogonadal, then it would probably push you in the range of not pre-diabetic and it would save you from a diabetes diagnosis and it would increase your metabolism and burn off your body fat and just seem like a magic pill, but it has to be for the right person. So um, you can take some people and niacin does help them and you can take some people and TRT does help them. And conversely, some people it hurts as well. Mm, Fascinating. I know, I know just switching topics a little bit here, but I know recently you mentioned a, um, uh, was it the study where you mentioned the eating speed, eating pace and obesity? Do you want to yeah. explore that a little bit with my listeners? So there was a study, it was called a repace, R-E-P-A-C-E. And it was at a children's hospital of Philadelphia, CHOP. And it was funded by the American Beverage Association. <laughs> And they found that basically if you use a strategy to intervene every 20 seconds or at regular intervals, then kids will eat healthier. Another way to do this is to feed them foods that they have to chew, whether it's plants or a piece of steak or something that's hard to do. And they will also take longer to eat. They will also digest their food better. So they'll be, they'll have improved satiety. 
So eating speed can help. There's other strategies that people use as well. In adults, some people like to put their fork down in between every bite. That infuriates me for some reason. I can't do that strategy. Some people also like to take 30 chews per bite. That also infuriates me because it really depends on what I'm eating. But there's a lot of various strategies. My kids love it playing this game called The Floor is Lava, where you play the song and then every 10 or 15 seconds, it'll say the floor is lava and you have to jump up on a couch or something. And you essentially make the eating game into something like that where they enjoy it because it turns out that the kids actually enjoyed their food better when they ate it a little bit slower. Wow. I was always, um, a lot of my friends say that I, I'm someone who eats super slow. And I think, um, I don't do it on purpose though. Like I honestly think it's partially due to uh, a hiatus hernia that I still have, which I never had it, you know, like operated on. So I think that I truly do think that does slow me down physically because it's food just literally takes more time to finally hit the lower part of my stomach. So I think that's a, I think that's a legitimate excuse for uh, eating so slow. The only thing is it's a bit annoying when you're on a date because uh, <laughs> you never bloody meal. Yeah. I think mindfulness is a great strategy for consuming calories consuming a lower amount of calories is really the net result we're after there. Because if you think about the environment that we're in today, we have literally fast food, liquid calories, where you can ingest you know, a thousand calories in a matter of minutes. You're always distracted. So people are on their phones when they're eating, watching TV when they're eating. So you're really not going to be mindful of the calorie intake and you're not going to get those satiety signals that you would have if you otherwise consume those, let's say, you know, 600 calories over a 15 or 20 minute time span. Whereas you were, you know, eating a burrito in, you know, three minutes, it's going to be a very different response psychologically. Mm-hmm. So our environment is uh, probably the time in history where we have the ability to consume the largest number of calories in the smallest amount of time. And what's also interesting there is um, if uh, either of you have, have either of you used a continuous glucose monitor at all? Yeah, I noticed some pretty profound effects. So the first day I used a CGM, I actually woke up and I had a fasting glucose of 124 and I thought, what did I do? I had, you know, a lot of liquid calories the previous night. And I had a lot of carbohydrates where I normally don't. So, you know, I had a big, a larger than normal insulin spike. And then I spiked down kind of low in the night. And then I had probably a compensatory glucagon spike that brought me up and cortisol as I was waking up. So uh, CGM will definitely tell you a lot about how your individual body reacts to different foods and drinks, especially that you eat. Yeah. Look, I'm really hoping that it's going to be, um, just as common as the aura ring in 2022. Cause I, I think the data from that, from my experience as well, Kyle was just phenomenal. Like I, I, I ran so many different experiments, um, different foods, liquid beverages, things like that. And um, super fascinating stuff. I guess my final question for you guys is um, which areas of research are you, I guess, really excited to see more research on, I guess, or, yeah, like which topics are you just keeping your eye out on? One topic that I'm particularly interested in is preventions for male pattern baldness or androgenic alopecia. So there's a lot of different ones that are potentially useful. Dutasteride mesotherapy, it seems like it's just a matter of time until people can go to their doctor and get the injections and have 
a lot of the benefit and not a lot of the downside. Another one is topical antiandrogens. Um, when Levi is one for acne, Clascoterone, it's basically RU58841, but slightly weaker. And it's probably only a matter of time until a drug company reformulates that from a cream into a foam and uses that for androgenic alopecia as well. So there's definitely a lot of interesting things on the horizon. PDE4 inhibitors are pretty interesting as well. So like Rufflamalast or a lot of eczema medications for people with eczema or psoriasis or different autoimmune skin conditions, they actually work really well for preventing alopecia. So those are some areas of interest that I think we'll see implicated clinically in the next decade. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that research as well. James, what about yourself? Yeah, I follow very closely the uh, androgenic alopecia research. So there's kind of two branches here. There's things that are preventative, like the dutasteride or topical antiandrogens. And then we also have you know, human hair follicles being grown on lab rats. So there's this idea of cell reprogramming and transplantation. So I guess depending on which side of the spectrum you're on, uh, whether you are you know, still have your hair and hoping to maintain it, or if you are somebody who has lost your hair and you're hoping for a solution to get it back, uh, would determine which side of the research you are you know, more interested in. So it'll kind of be a race to see which side the therapies develop the quickest on. So very excited to see those things. I also like to see the repurposing of older medications for novel purposes and things like, you know, metformin, rapamycin and rapalogs for their activity in the mTOR pathway, potentially with cancers and longevity, although the data is still in its infancy. So I, very hard to make any recommendations there. And then even uh, dutasteride, a relatively old medication um, with some, I believe it was machine learning. They looked at its uh, penetration into the blood-brain barrier, and it uh, was found to have some potential neuroprotective properties. So decreasing things like uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha and some inflammatory cytokines, which was previously unknown about the way the medication might operate. So lots of uh, interesting data coming out. So I'm just always reading studies and I'll kind of go down rabbit holes on one topic or another, but um, yeah, definitely preventive medicine. And then also some interest on the cosmetic side of things. Mm, interesting. Awesome, guys. Well, um, Kyle, do you want to let my listeners know where they can find you online? Absolutely. They can find me on Instagram. My handle is KyleGilletteMD. Soon I'll have a website and other places that they can find me as well. Awesome. And James, yourself? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at James O'Hara, O-H-A-R-A-N-P. James O'Hara NP, jamesoharanp.com, which is a blog that I don't frequently post to, unfortunately, I need to get back into that. And then at some point, I will probably have a YouTube channel. And I'm also at Merrick Health. Awesome, guys. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a, a pleasure having you. Thank you, Lucas. Awesome. Thanks for having us. No worries. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.